Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services all across the country. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Bridget Taylor and talking a lot about compassionate care and hearing about active listening and how it plays a pivotal role in our programming as clinicians and in supporting our families. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Taylor, Dr. Bridget Taylor is co-founder and CEO of Alpine Learning Group and is the senior clinical advisor for Rethink. She holds a doctorate of psychology from Rutgers University and received her master's degree in early childhood special education from Columbia University. She's also a board-certified behavior analyst and a licensed psychologist. I hope you learned something from today's conversation. Bridget, thanks so much for joining us this week. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So for a while, you've been talking a lot about compassionate care, and it, it's become kind of a focal point for the community and for the medical community as well, it seems. Can you tell us more about what that term means? Sure. Um, so let me just give you a little bit of a background and how I got interested in compassionate care, specifically Great. compassionate care for caregivers um, of you know families that have children with autism. You know, I've been in the field of behavior analysis for many years, and early on in my training, um, I realized that I thought I knew a lot, and um, I would often go in and bestow what I thought were my brilliant ideas upon families and um, tell them what to do, so to speak, and leave, and then come back and expect treatment integrity, and lo and behold, I, I didn't get it. And what I uh, found myself frustrated with was uh, the, uh, you know, where families uh, follow through, and, and I found myself as a clinician, even though I hadn't had a lot of training and not a lot of supervision at the time, I was blaming families, and, you know, um, it wasn't a very, very good quality to have as a, you know, certainly as somebody trying to provide services to families, and so, you know, over time in my work with families, I realized that um, it was a really important um, intervention variable was to approach each family individually and, um have uh, compassion for their experiences in terms of what they were going through. And, and, you know, that was kind of a long process for me. And I I realized that that was work that I needed to do professionally as a clinician and then subsequently becoming, you know, a supervisor and running a program. I found myself bumping up against this and young clinicians who were coming out of training programs, um, not very equipped to engage in interactions with families to form those therapeutic relationships so uh, myself and uh, Drs. Linda LeBlanc and Melissa Nozick got together and started talking about, you know, what was being done in the, in the field and what was being done in other fields, and that prompted us to write a paper about it. And as part of that paper, we polled families to see what their impressions were of 
behavior analysts, relationship building skills. And so what we found is that we have a lot of work to do still in our uh, training programs to help clinicians develop important skills. And so that's kind of a, a abbreviated background of how I got interested in, in the topic. But uh, in terms of your question of, you know, what are we talking about, you know, there are terms out there, you know, sympathy, empathy, and compassion, and those terms are often conflated and confused and, and um, you know, but they're thought to mean very distinct things and in some ways different processes and sympathy is often associated with pity and pity, unfortunately, mm. is, you know, nobody wants to be pitied and, and so that sometimes is associated with unpleasant feelings. And so um, empathy, on the other hand, is, is perspective taking. And as a discipline, we know a lot about perspective taking in terms of, of you know, uh, what's required and, and some of the emerging work in the area of relational frame theory. But compassion really takes empathy a step further. So, you know, empathy requires that perspective taking of, we use the term walking in someone else's shoes. But compassion right. could be thought Compassion really could be thought of that act, you know, the compassionate act, you know, taking, it's really considered um, empathy in action, so to speak. So you can feel yeah. empathy towards someone, but how do you act to alleviate suffering? And part of the process of, of getting to the point of, of being able to alleviate one's suffering is really to have an understanding of the universality of suffering in general and that, um, you know, we are all suffering as human beings and then how do we, um, enact action in order to alleviate the suffering of, of the person whom we're working with. And so um, that's really, you know, we can think of these things as, as different um, processes and, and compassion really being that action. I really like the way you describe that. I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning, um, I'm envisioning lots of things. I mean, first I'm thinking about my experience as an early clinician and struggling with the balance of, Am I building a relationship with this family? Is it bordering on dual relationship? Am I too close? Am I too standoffish? I mean, as you described that, I was really feeling kind of my own struggles when I was first a clinician um, and what that brought in and how I learned to communicate with families. And certainly I think it's something that a lot of young clinicians struggle with. Yes. And, you know, I think it requires – you know, our, part of our work is really to recognize suffering of families in a non-judgmental way, and that that understanding of the universality of the human experience, and and being moved by that person's suffering, emotion, and emotionally connecting with that person really allows us then to create action to alleviate that suffering. And and I would agree that that what happens is that sometimes you know we're so we've been so terrific at helping people understand the importance of boundaries and ethics and the work that we do. Um, and I often get this question when I present this lecture, which is, you know, how do we have a relationship with parent? How do we have a relationship with a parent without crossing that boundary? And, and I always say it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of, and, and it requires getting good supervision and knowing when you've crossed that boundary, but keeping still keeping that, that uh, relationship open and developing the therapeutic relationship with the family, because, the research in other industries, the research in other healthcare industries really indicate that relationships matter and that when you have good relationships with those whom you're serving, you're more likely to get adherence to treatment, you're more likely to get better health outcomes, you're more likely to have positive responses in terms of reducing anxiety when uh, individuals who are entering, for example, medical, uh, you know, going in for a health 
exams, they're going to have less, less anxiety when their practitioner is associated with some of these responses. So I imagine for the clinicians and for, you know, for anyone who's using compassionate care, active listening is probably a very, a very pivotal part of this, right? Being able to listen and just listen from a place of understanding, not from listening from a place of trying to respond quickly. That's absolutely right. You know, I would say that when I work with novice clinicians and we're having meetings with families, there's such an urge for us to come to the solution right away, to come up with some uh, intervention that's going to solve the problem. And, you know, that's how we've been schooled, right? We, we are technic- right. We're trained in, in technical precision, and, and we have these, you know, tools of the trade, so to speak. And what we want to do is our impetus to alleviate, alleviate suffering becomes um, almost too quick with action and not an opportunity to really understand fully the family's experience or the parent's experience. And so, you know, when we talk about active listening, it's, it's, it's you know, giving pause, allowing a family, allowing a parent to express their experience and not wanting to derail and go into treatment recommendations too soon or steering the, the conversation away from emotional content. You know, it, these are skills that are, you know, that one can learn reframing, for example, is important in empathic and active listening. So making sure that you're restating what you think you think, what you think the family is saying, what the parent is saying, just to get that clarification. So, yeah, I would say listening is probably one of the most important fundamental skills that we engage in with families. It's the ability to listen, to not jump to treatment too quickly, to fully understand um, the family's experience. And, and, you know, when we take time to listen, we're going to be able to identify some of the potential barriers to our intervention, right? So if we're, you know, if a family's struggling with a sleep protocol, for example, and we just want to jump in and correct the plan and make modifications to the plan without really understanding, oh, I see, you have to get up at 6 in the morning three days a week, and that's going to, you know, that's going to make implementing this plan difficult. And so when we listen we're learning, and that learning then can lead to better and more enhanced treatment. I like that. Listening leads to learning, and I think then we can really understand the whole situation and not just how the family is impacted in the hour or two or three or four, whatever time that we're there, but also how they're being impacted outside of our session. And I can't think of a more I can't think of a more important time than right now when we're in the midst of a global pandemic with COVID-19 um, having an impact on the family's day-to-day life in addition to our therapy, right? There's multiple factors there. Is now, I, I mean, is now a time for us to have more compassionate care for our families and our and our colleagues? Is that? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, if ever there's a time to be compassionate with ourselves um, and the families whom we're serving, I, you know, I certainly think we're we're kind of at this uh, unprecedented time in in providing treatment to families. We've never been here before, and you know, in working with the clinicians who um, at Alpine who are providing services, you know, we really help them to try to work with the family and collaborate with the family, and so you know. Like all of us right now, we have a ton of competing contingencies. They may have other children in the home. They may have health concerns. They may be worried about their employment. They might have issues with their partner now that they're living full-time and both working in the same home. 
So there's just, you know, there's so much going on. And, and, you know, we, we're part of our, one of our funding programs is through the state education department and they have a mandate about the number of hours that we need to um, be able to offer and provide. And, and, you know, when you have a one size fits all, you gotta be online for four hours a day, that creates a whole lot of stress for families. And, you know, being able to approach the, the, virtual, um, the virtual interventions that we're providing from an individualized perspective and really looking at the, the family constellation and what some of those competing contingencies are, but also really helping families develop the compassion for themselves. And, you know, I think our families are working harder than anybody right now, and, and particularly those families who, whose services have been disrupted and they're now, um, you, know, provi- you know, some of them are in school programs that are providing very little service. Some of their insurance-funded programs have completely um, ceased. Some families, it's been cut right. back. Some, some families have less therapists or the preferred therapist is no longer in the home that they liked. And so they're, you know, they're doing so much work as part of this process. I know for my school program, my families in the school program, they're basically the ones providing the intervention. And, you know, I try to give them permission, take a day off, it's okay. Cut back on what we're doing, it's okay. Give us feedback. And so I think that conversation, constant conversations and checking in with families is really essential, and that's kind of where that compassion can be expressed. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking you just said something that really sparked a whole separate thought for me, Um, the concept of self-compassion, right, making sure that, you know, as clinicians, we have self-compassion and making sure that we're giving ourselves that opportunity to take a day off if we need to. But also as parents, we need to make sure that we do that. Can you talk a little bit more about self-compassion and how we can do that as parents and as clinicians? Yeah. So Kristen Neff is a psychologist and she's done a lot of work in the area of self-compassion. So I really encourage people to, um, you know, look at her work. She actually has a self-compassion scale online, um, I take it from time to time. I have my staff take it, but it's, you know, I often fail it. But, you know, self-compassion really is, um, you know, the process of, you know, being really mindful of the verbal, you know, the covert verbal behavior that we might have that um, isn't very pleasant. You know, um, we're often pretty down on ourselves, right? So mindfulness, you know, it really requires a mindfulness that um, recognizes when we're stressed or struggling without being judgmental about ourselves. And, and accept, you know, certainly there's, there's more work now emerging in the area of acceptance and commitment therapy where, you know, there's different terms that they use for some of these things. But, you know, really recognizing when you're having an unpleasant negative thought that you can distance yourself from that and say, I am thinking that I am a bad parent, but, in fact, those are your thoughts, right? And we can think about, well, we're really not our thoughts, these thoughts, exist independent of who we really are. And then you could even get more meta and that I'm having, I'm acknowledging that I'm actually having the thought that, right? And so you can kind of distance yourself further from these negative covert verbal behavior uh, responses that you might be engaging in. But it's really, first of all, recognizing that you're struggling, not being judgmental, and then having some kind of self-kindness. So, um, you know, it's often recommended, for example, to say, well, what if a friend of yours was saying the same thing to themselves? Like, you know, I'm a lousy parent. I I should be, you know, doing X and doing Y. And then what would you be saying to that parent? You might be saying, hey, you know what? We're all stressed out. 
you got to give yourself a break. You're doing the best you can. And so having that self-kindness, I think, is part of self-compassion. And then that connectedness with people, realizing that people have, other people are having similar experiences, right, that everybody has these, these experiences and that, again, this universality of suffering. So, you know, part of, you know, it's kind of, you know, I felt, I said to myself, if I see one more insurance ad with we're in this together, you know, that, that's there for a reason to remind us that we are all suffering. And when we can connect with that universality of suffering, it allows us to say, okay, I'm not the only one. I feel less alone. So self-compassion really requires this this kind of interrelationship between being mindful that I'm having these thoughts, being kind to ourselves, and then also recognizing, you know, I'm not alone in this. And so, you know, families hopefully, you know, if we work with families, helping them to be able to, you know, engage in some of these responses. And I think for teachers, for some of, you know, I know for myself, you know, when the shutdown happened, we were working, you know, incredibly, you know, just overtime, making sure families, you know, stabilizing treatments, figuring out program closures, you know, really, really, we were, we were really in, like, we were triaging, right? All of us have been triaging our program. Right. And, um, and none of us feel like we're doing it good enough. You know why? Because none of us have ever been here, right? So we're, you know, this is new for us. And so my colleagues and I, when we talk, we're all like, how are you doing? I don't know. I feel like I'm not doing, you know, and then we're giving our, you know, kind of talking it out and realizing, oh, yeah, we all feel like we're not doing enough for the families whom we're serving. But that's because we've never been here, and that's because it's an unusually stressful time. And I think when we can realize that, hey, you know, these, you know, instead of having the thought that I'm not doing enough, that you have the thought, you know, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm not doing enough and kind of distancing yourself from that feeling and then being kind to yourself and saying, I'm doing the best I can, for example. And it sounds relatively simplistic. And, you know, of course, mindfulness has been, you know, has been around for a long time. I mean, it's a, you know, an Eastern tradition in meditation and, and it's not, uh, you know, this isn't anything new. It's been around for a very long time, but I think certainly the application of, of helping families to become self-compassionate in, in, in their um, interactions with their children and, and some of the components of ACT, of course, in working with children, uh, working with families who have children with autism. Yeah, it's so true. I, I mean, this is something that I think I've had to learn a lot over the years, both as a parent and, again, as a clinician. And I remember, you know, times of just feeling like I wasn't programming the right way. I wasn't, you know, seeing families enough. I wasn't having enough conversations. I, you know, feeling that I wasn't doing enough and there's always more to do. And, and it took, it took me a while to learn what I, what I can do. And, you know, for me, it's, if I start feeling that way, I stop everything I'm doing, which sounds counterintuitive. And I just write down everything that's on my mind, whether it's, you know, a thought about a, a family, a thought about my, my family, a thought about, I need gas in my car, whatever it is that's on my mind, I write it all down. And, and for me, that helps. For me, it's just right. getting it out of my head, uh, stop it from bouncing around and having it where I can say, oh, I can check this off. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, that right, helps right. me a lot. But yeah, that took so a learning process. Yeah. And, and, and what I don't think people realize often is that when we have these, when we engage in self-blame, I can't believe I said that, um, you know, this parent probably thinks I'm incompetent. It really actually actually exacerbates the original problem because you're fixating on the, the negative impacts, right? And you actually reinforce the negative covert verbal behavior with self-criticism, right? You might say, maybe I really am totally incompetent. 
And this non-compassionate thought loop is, is so unproductive because it squanders time and energy that actually could instead be invested in the delivery of services or relationship building. And so what people don't realize is kind of, it's almost like in some ways a, you know, uh, it's a focus on self as opposed to a focus on other. And that when you are um, engaged in these negative thought loops, you are ascribing thoughts and attitudes to the caregiver that may not actually exist. If of course your, your negative thought loop is about how you interacted with that parent and that actually can have an erosive impact on future interactions, right? So a lack of self-compassion can interfere with modeling compassionate interactions for the caregiver. So there's, you know, it kind of interacts, you know, if you don't have that self-compassion for yourself, you're going to be so bogged down that you're not open and receptive to those relationships with other people. I hadn't considered it from that perspective. That's that's great insight. You know, you brought something up a few minutes ago, and I want to go back to it if that's okay. Um, you mentioned that, that you and, and a few colleagues wrote a paper and polled some families, and I'm just curious, what were some of the what was some of the insight that the family shared? What was some of their perspective? Yeah, so we sent a survey out into the interweb, you know, uh, tried to get it out there without actually handing the survey to families because we didn't want them to, to be, you know, biased and filling out their responses. We had a, you know, relatively, you know, we didn't have a great return rate. It was about 99 surveys that we were able to analyze. And, you know, what we found was that um, there were things that we were doing pretty well with, according to the responses of the survey. For example, when we looked at empathy and compassion, that it, we were rated pretty high on demonstra- demonstrating care about the child and acknowledging and appreciating the child's strengths. But on the other hand, we were rated low in acknowledging our own mistakes, for example, that behavior analysts mm. often don't own up when they make a mistake, or reassuring parents that things will get, get, get better, for example, um, or understanding what it's like for parents. And again, on the other hand, we seem to do pretty well with listening and considering parent input, which I think is terrific, which seems to indicate that we might be doing a good job on collaboration. But we also um, learned through the survey that sometimes um, we may not be compromising when there's a disagreement. So if, you know, it's kind of like one of the barriers to compassionate care is this kind of my way or the highway mentality. So if you think you have all the answers, which, you know, I'm thinking back to my 26-year-old self where I thought I had all the answers, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of, you know, that creates a real barrier. And so that, that was kind of showing up. And then we asked families, you know, what are some of the behaviors that interfere with relationship development and relation, therapeutic relationships? And, you know, they, they, some of the families said, you know, having their own agenda, underestimating their child, not communicating regularly. So, you know, there are, you know, we have some work to do. And, again, again it's not going to be, you know, this isn't universal for all families' experiences. But, you know, these were the families that completed the survey. And then what was interesting is we did a follow-up survey where we actually asked clinicians, both of these papers are published in BAPS, by the way, we did a follow-up study where we actually asked behavior analysts, hey, do you think these skills are important? Have you had academic training in these skills? If you have, what, is, what did it look like? And then, and then do you think your, your, your fellow colleagues struggle with these skills? And, you know, amongst the very uh, other questions. And, and what was interesting is, uh, you know, 225 behavior analysts completed the survey, 82% said they either sometimes or often felt unprepared to deal with expressions of emotions from parents. So imagine that 82% of these wow. 
clinicians actually say, I'm, I'm, I don't feel prepared to deal with a family who's crying or I don't feel prepared to deal with a parent who's angry. So that's really interesting. And most, nev- you know, most of, most of the, the respondents said that they never had formal training in these skills, which really isn't surprising, but half said they're at least getting mentor training, and I think that's terrific. But I thought this was probably one of the more interesting data points, which is that 94% of the respondents said their colleagues struggle with these skills. And so while they recognize these skills might be lacking in themselves, they said when they look around at their colleagues, they're like, oh, yeah, needs to develop more empathy or is too emotionally detached. And, you know, so we're, we're looking at this, you know, we're, we're looking around and we're seeing this in our colleagues and then also maybe some self-reflection and saying, you know, we need to develop these skills in ourselves. And so I think, you know, our goal really is to say, hey, Families think this is an issue. Colleagues are saying, you know, this is an issue. We need to have some more training. And that's why we presented, you know, an outline, some of the the seedlings, I would say, of a curriculum that could be used if you're doing some training. Clearly, we need more research. Clearly, we need more uh, work in the area of curriculum development in this area. But I think this is the way this is the way you know change starts, right? It's with having this conversation, it's with starting with some initial research and then from there we we are really good as a as a field about replicating research and and trying new research along the same pathways. So I think that's it's exciting that we're at least here because that means that there's more to come. Yeah, and you know, we can use other health disciplines as a, you know, as a guidepost. Now, of course, there a lot of their research is correlational and a lot of their research is survey based. But that's, you know, those are some of that research may be important in, in the end in terms of informing us. And I think, you know, we as a discipline, I think, have to, you know, part of the work that we have to do is interrogate, you know, is is individually and as a profession really integrate, you know, interrogate this assumption that concepts like compassion and empathy are too nebulous. You know, we're, we're often afraid of these, you know, terms because they seem metaphorical, but I would argue that they really should command our scientific attention. And, you know, I think we're, we're particularly well poised to articulate these responses because we're so good at task analysis. We're so good at developing, you know, teaching protocols. You know, we have behavioral skills training as a, well-researched intervention that can lead to behavior change in adults. And so I think we have to take what we have and the tools of our discipline and really apply it to this area because it's really important. Absolutely. So with all this research, um, I, I have to highlight, you're also the CEO of Alpine Learning Group. And so how are you using all this research in your day-to-day practices there? That's a great question. You know, I'm one of the co-founders of Alpine, if you can believe it, I was 24. Um, don't do the math. I've been in, we've been in business for about 31 years, so I'll leave it at that. Um, and, you know, it's really been a journey to work on growing the program, and, um, you know, we, we have a, a small but very robust research group um, as part of the program, a research team. And, you know, where we're, you know, where this work is focused really is in our training programs. And so providing mm-hmm. uh, consistent annual training in the area of relationship building and active and empathic listening. So really making sure it's part of our training and also making sure it's part of our program evaluation, consumer evaluation process. And so, you know, when we provide a service to the family, are we asking about variables such as, you know, was the, did the clinician take time to listen to your concerns? Um, if you were upset, did the clinician provide empathic statements? And then in our, you know, in our, we, we have 
we have learners whom we serve for the long term, right? So we have children who might come to us at the age of two and they're with us until they're 30. And so looking at, you know, the life cycle of families and making sure that we have a good understanding of, of, you know, how that life cycle might shift and change and needs of families change over time. And then making sure that our compassion and action is related to that. So families, when they first start with us, I'll give you an example. You know, they're gun-ho. They're ready to do the work. They're, they're, you know, they're uh, all with us. You know, they want the training. And then around kindergarten, there's some sadness because their child's not maybe going to a typical learning environment and they are grieving once again. And then there are times where families just need a break. And then there's fears when children are growing up and turning 21 and they're going to lose their education funding. And we have to have, you know, we have to interact with families around that in a way that's compassion and helping to support them and accessing services as their, their children with uh, autism become adults. And so, you know, part of the compassion is understanding, you know, where families are in the process and growth of, of, of their child, but really integrating that within our training and really integrating important questions in our consumer evaluations about whether we are in fact demonstrating these responses and that families really feel um, held in that particular way, that we are providing that service that's so important, that's clinical in nature and affecting change with their child, but also providing that supportive, compassionate element as well. I like the way you're describing that. I mean, those are those are some terms that behavior analysts haven't historically used too often, right? Grief and fear and understanding and, and some of those are things that we have, as as a field, have shied away from. Um, it's nice to hear that we're having this conversation. It's nice to hear that like that we're thinking about things in a different way, especially when you're talking about servicing families from two until twenty. You you're a part of that family. You're a part of them. They're growing up. You're a part of them going through adolescence and becoming teenagers and becoming young adults. And I imagine that the conversation has to shift over time to make sure that you're meeting the family's current needs, not their previous needs, if that makes sense. That's right. That's right. And and one of the things, you know, we would be um, amiss if we did not realize and accept that the work that we do with our families is relational in nature. So when we walk into a family's home and we are observing a bedtime routine or a feeding program or a bathing program, you know, and we are working with families on understanding their, their fears around, um, you know, what it's like to take their child to the, to the supermarket because they're afraid of what someone's going to think and that the child's free. When we're in, in talking with families and then prescribing interventions with collaboration, that's a relational act, right? We are having a relationship with right. the person whom we are serving. And I think it would be a myth, we'd be a myth to, to ignore that. Um, should we have boundaries? Sure. Should we help families to know the kinds of communications that are productive and meaningful that are going to, uh, you know, lead to hopefully more uh, impactful changes with their child? Of course. But, you know, we can't take the relationship out of what we're doing. We just can't. And if you do, if you take it out, I fear that we're going to miss opportunities there and we're going we're gonna to really kind of miss the chance to have long-term meaningful impacts with the learners whom we're serving. That's a great point. That's a great point to highlight. Uh, Dr. Taylor, where can we find more about you and your research and about Alpine Learning Group? Where can we get that information? Well, we're like everyone else on social media, so um, alpinelearninggroup.org. We, um, we have a media section with all of the research articles that we've published. We also have some really interesting work in the area of observational learning. Um, 
My research uh, coordinator is also very interested in some work in social referencing in children with autism, so really looking at some of the early social behavior. So, you know, you can see our, uh, look at our research there. Um, the articles that I talked about today have been published in the last couple of years in behavior analysis and practice. In fact, the last one on consumers, uh, on rather behavior analysts, impression of these skills was just, just came out in this recent issue of behavior analysis and practice. Great. Well, thank you so much for the research you're doing and for your your time in sharing that with us. We definitely appreciate it, and I think we are better as a field because of conversations like these. So thank you for thank you for doing this. My pleasure. I appreciate you inviting me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Bridget Taylor. I certainly did, and I learned a few things, uh, and there are a few things I really want to highlight and share with everybody. Um, the first thing that really comes to my mind and that really stood out from our conversation about compassionate care is this concept of active listening. You know, she really highlighted that we need to listen and maybe understand the whole truth and make sure that we understand how what, what it is we're doing as clinicians impacts our families, both during session and outside of session. You know, I like to think of it as listening from a place of understanding, not listening from a place to answer. And one thing that she really gave us was permission to say, that's a great question. I'll have to get back to you on that. Let me do a little research so I give you the right, most thoughtful answer. She didn't say those words, but I think that was really the underlying message that I took from what she was saying. And the second thing that, that we talked about that stood out to me is this concept of self-care. I don't know that we ever talk about this enough. Um, I, I think if we don't visit self-care and, and we don't talk about how to make sure we're taking care of ourselves, we're going to experience compassion fatigue. As clinicians, we're going to experience compassion fatigue, and we're going we're gonna to experience burnout, and we're going to have times where we just feel like we're missing things and we can't take care of all our families. And I've seen too many great quality clinicians leave the field and uh, because they couldn't, under, they couldn't take care of themselves and they couldn't make sure that they had everything that they needed to stay positive and energetic and supportive of families. It's really hard. The work that we do is really hard. Parents have a really hard, uh, really hard time as well, particularly right now. I loved her idea of distancing ourselves from negative thoughts and making sure that we are giving ourselves some compassion and a little bit of grace to say, I'm feeling this way right now. What are things I can do to take care of this? So with that said, make sure you're taking care of yourselves and each other. Make sure that you're listening to yourselves and each other. And just slow down if you need to. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or feedback, please send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And you can always subscribe and rate us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.